Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger with this week's message from Story Point Church. We have this week and next week to conclude this study on holiness. And so we're going to jump into Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. This is really hot right here. Can we turn that at least right here down a little bit? Thank you. Um, So turn to Hebrews chapter 13 this morning and we're going to get started talking about the holiness of God and life application of living that out. So for weeks now we've been studying Leviticus 19.2, where God says, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at life application aspects of it. Last week, Pastor Kevin filled in, and he talked about the holiness of God and life application, and that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That the God of the Old Testament is the very same God of the New Testament, which is the very same God for us here today. There is no difference. There is no separation. It's kind of in our understanding of Scripture or misunderstanding of Scripture that we have God in one box in the Old Testament, God in a different box in the New Testament, and then God in some kind of box today. But our God is boxless. And in our hearts and our minds, we are the ones that need to break down the walls within our minds that confine God into some type of rigid state that He has to fill in and apply to His, His, His way of living to, uh, to the way that we envision Him. And that's incorrect. So we're going to jump into Hebrews chapter 13. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 together and dissect that just for a few minutes this morning. If you would, turn there and let's begin reading together. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to entertain strangers or to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man or mortal do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. May God bless the reading of His word. So let's jump into this from the very beginning. Love. You know, love is truly the foundation of Christianity. It's one of those foundational pillars. One of the foundations of living a Christ-like life is love. And the author of Hebrews says very specifically right here that we are to love one another as brothers and sisters. 
So depending on the way that you are raised, depending on your framework, depending on the lens through which you read the Scripture, you may have a different interpretation than others when it comes to loving each other as brothers and sisters. Because as a pastor, I can read this verse, love each other as brothers and sisters and have one interpretation. However, I'm also a father with four children, ages 13 down to three. And when I put on that lens to read this verse of loving each other the way you're called to love your brothers and sister, that's a whole different frame of reference. And for those of you that know my family, or maybe your family as well, you say amen to that. Guys, we have to back away from our misunderstanding of what love is. Because in love, we add so many different things. We think love means compromise. Many times in relationships, we allow our loved ones to be the way they are because saying something would not show love. We look at each other and we say we're to love each other the way Christ loved the church, yet we look within the church and there's more of a brother-sister, little kid mentality that seems to happen within churches of gossip, of animosity, of frustration, like we're actually living together, versus what we're talking about here in Scripture of the idea that love is important. That love is something that we are called to imitate in Christ, emulate and imitate Christ-like love to those that are around us. Each of us are to look at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and brothers and sisters within the physical, spiritual, and emotional realm. And the way that we interact with each other demonstrates to the rest of the world whether or not we truly proclaim Christ as our Lord and Savior. Jesus Himself said, They will know you are my followers by the way that you show love to one another. And so that's just an open-ended question for our church specifically, but for all churches, for all Christ followers around the world. Does the world know that we're Christ followers based on the way that we show love right here within our body? Are we known as Christ followers around the world because of the love that is found within these four walls at this very moment? You see, the foundation of what this verse talks about, loving as brothers and sisters, is vital to our way of life as Christ followers. If you've got your Bibles open, Turn just a few pages to the right to 1 John. I want you to look at 1 John chapter 3 where John, the Apostle John, talks a little bit more, gives us a little bit more practical ways of demonstrating love within a congregation, within a family dynamic, within the way that we live our lives. 1 John chapter 3 verses 16 through 18, John the Apostle says this, this is how we know what love is. So if we pause right there and we read that, hopefully our ears will tingle just a little bit and say, I need to pay attention to this. Because the author is saying, this, what I'm about to tell you, is a demonstration of what love is. And it applies to our understanding of Hebrews chapter 13. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 
If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or language or tongue, but with actions and in truth. You see, we do a very good job within our world of loving with our language. We can say, I love you all day long. Perhaps you grew up in a home where you heard all day long, I love you, but you never saw it demonstrated. Or perhaps... You live in a life right now where you have people that tell you that they love you, but the demonstration of that love is absent. And that's what John is addressing right here. It's very easy to use words and say, I love you. Say, I care about you. Say, well, it's a good thing. We're all Christ followers. We should love each other. We should say, I love you. And I would encourage you. Every single day, to those that you are in contact with, to those that you live life with, to tell them that you love you, that you love them. It is very important to say those words. But to say those words without the action of our hands and our feet are pointless. Jesus demonstrated His love for us, is what John said. He demonstrated His love for us in that He laid down His life for us, and we as Christ followers are called to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, for each and every other person. This is not only laying down our lives physically, as in take my life instead of your life. It is a lifestyle of putting others first, putting other who are Christ followers above ourselves, to build each other up. When you are down, I lift you up. When I am down, you lift me up. We lock arms together. We hold hands together. We embrace each other together. And we demonstrate love. John addressed finances. Giving of our finances to show the, that we love each other. What good is it to have finances, as John says, and see a brother or sister in need and say, well, good luck to you. I'm going to pray for you. I hope everything turns out well. But we know that there's an issue that needs to be addressed, and we are unwilling to help and demonstrate that love. God's called us and told us that everything that we own, 100% of everything that we own is His. And He gives it to us to impact the world for the cause of Christ. You see, our job, our responsibility, our calling as Christ followers is to demonstrate the love of God, especially within our body. So again, I ask that question. Are we known, our particular church right here, right now, are we known in our city? As a church that loves, are you known in this city as someone who loves their brothers and sisters in Christ and supports and takes care of them? Look at verse 2. Hebrews 13, 2 says this, Do not forget to entertain strangers or show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. How much time have you done studying in the Bible the concept of angels? Probably not a whole lot. There's not very many Bible studies that are directed just toward angelology and figuring out this idea of angels. But we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And this God of right now and forever. And that same God used angels in the Old Testament and angels in the New Testament 
So if he did it then, he'd likely to do it right now. There's no biblical evidence to show that there's no longer a need for angels. So these angels, these messengers of God, even though we may not recognize them visibly as angels, they may not be walking around with big wings upon them or standing six, eight, ten feet tall and being so overwhelmingly uh, amazing and spectacular that it, we just know instantly they're angels. But we see by the author of Hebrews that we are to demonstrate hospitality. We're to entertain strangers. We're to take care of the, bro uh, the brothers and sisters in Christ and be hospitable. Now, in our culture, in our world today, yeah, that kind of makes sense. We're kind of known, especially in the Deep South, as a place of hospitality. Matter of fact, it's kind of common language. When you use the word Southern, the word hospitality automatically comes second, right? Southern hospitality. It goes just like sweet tea. The two are synonymous. They stay together. We are known because of where we are culturally in the Deep South as being a people of hospitality. But I question that. I wonder. I know we were years ago. But as the southern drawl from our accent has slowly started to fade away, has our southern hospitality as well started to fade away? Are we known as Christ followers who are hospitable, who open up our homes to our neighbors, to our friends, to our church family, to our brothers, to our sisters, to strangers. The author of Hebrews talks about opening our home up to people that we may not even know. That's kind of scary. We kind of talk against doing that in our culture, don't we? In fact, we train our children. If you don't recognize that person, if you don't know them, if it's not a friend or mom and dad, and they say, Come with them, you, you stay away. You stay away from strangers. Strangers are bad guys. Strangers are people that we don't want to associate with. Yet throughout Scripture, Jesus constantly ministered to strangers. And the disciples constantly ministered to strangers. And the whole idea of Christianity is to minister to a lost and dying world. And quite honestly, if we're all a bunch of Christ-following believers, then it's the people that we don't know that's part of this lost and dying world. So our calling is to entertain, to show hospitality, to open our homes, open our lives, share meals together. That's one of the things we love about root groups here is the idea of opening our homes and sharing meals together because there's something unique that happens. It may not happen the first time, maybe not even the second time, but the more often you sit at a table together, whether it's in your home, maybe it's at the rib shack. I don't know. Whatever it is that you like, but opening up a table together and sharing a meal. Walls come down. Fences are torn down. There's something incredible that happens. Vulnerability rises to the surface and we're willing to jump in, uh, into conversation that normally we would stay away from. Hospitality tears down these walls. And he says, be careful, be aware who knows, you may actually be hosting an angelic visitor in your home. What would you do if you knew as soon as this service was over and you were going home and you, you're going to have somebody at your house waiting to have lunch with you and you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was an angelic host, how would you feel? 
Would you like, oh, I can't wait to get home. Heart starts to beat a little bit, get excited. I got the angel coming to eat dinner with me. How incredible is that? I'm going to ask him about heaven. I'm going to ask him about Jesus. I'm going to ask him about God. I'm going to ask him about my future. I'm going to ask him about the past. I'm ask him, were they around when this happened? And do they know about what this is? Our minds would just start to race, and it would be hard to, to grasp the enormity of that moment. And yet the Scripture tells us it's a possibility of our hearts and our lives, that entertaining, living life, sharing life. Those are possibilities. Why? Because the truth is, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the things that He used in the past, He sure can use today and does. Look at verse 3. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. Actually, before we do that, I want to look back and talk a little bit more about love because I forgot to do this. Go to Romans chapter 12 if you've got your Bible. Romans chapter 12, because this is important. I'm, de- I'm going back to verse 1 and 2 here. Romans chapter 12, dealing with hospitality. Paul talks a little bit more about love and what hospitality looks like. Look at verses 9, 9 through 16. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. And do not be conceited. More life application of what it means to be a Christ follower living out a lifestyle of love. You see, it's more than just opening our doors and allowing people to come in. It is truly living a lifestyle of love. And living it in such a way that is apparent to the world that is around us. Part of that ties in to verse 3 of Hebrews 13 that I just read. Let me read that again. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves are suffering. Now, Depending on the research that you would do on this particular verse, you could come up with two trains of thought on what this verse is actually applying to. Is it applying to Christ followers in the world who are in prison because of their faith? Or is it about people who are in prison, period? And you can defend either one of those pretty easily. Here's the point, or here's the bottom line. What's the difference? Why does it make a difference? The point is that we, as Christ followers, are called to minister to a lost and dying world. So let's assume for a moment that it's talking about those who do not know Jesus, who are not part of the body of Christ, who are not suffering for their faith, but they are in prison. Guys, we have ministries within our church. We have people within our church, and there's ministries all across this world that go into prisons to bring light into a dark, dark world. A place that is absent of the love of Christ. A place that is neglected of the love of Christ. A place that does not realize or understand the love that God has for them. It's a dark, dark world. 
And these ministries go into these prisons and they preach truth and they preach the light and they show the life of light that is for every single person and give these individuals who do not know Jesus the opportunity to know Jesus. And it also ministers to those who are Christ followers, who because of circumstances in life made bad choices or made choices that led them to be separated from their families and incarcerated and still shows them the love of Christ and reiterates to them that God has a purpose and a plan for their life. In addition to that, as Christ followers, we have to acknowledge a few certain things right here, right now. Number one, that in this point in time, in the history of our world, there are more people in prison because of their faith, because of them saying yes to Jesus Christ, than have been incarcerated because of their faith in the history of the world. There are more people in prison today because of their faith around the world than at any time in the history of the world. There are more people laying down their faith, being martyred for their faith right now in this year than in the history of the world. Why? Because there's more people on the world, on this planet right now. And because of that, Christ is making a larger move and more people are going in their faith. And we have this underground church and this, uh, this abused church, this, um, this church that is targeted because of their faith. And across the world, we have brothers and sisters, the same ones that in verse 1 we're called to love and to uh, take care of that are incarcerated because of their faith or being mistreated because of their faith. And we as Christ followers are called to pray for them. To pray for them. Because if they're in prison in China, they're in prison in India, they're in prison in Africa, what am I going to do here in the United States other than pray for them? Maybe you have a specific calling on your heart and your life to be able to go into China, to go into India, to go into Africa and help alleviate the pain and the suffering that's going on there. Perhaps that's the calling on your heart in your life. But for the majority of folks... God's not calling them to do that, but He is calling us to pray for the persecuted church, to pray for our brothers and sisters in the faith who are laying down their lives for the cause of Christ every single moment of every single day. That's our calling. That's our responsibility. Let's take that serious. Let's take that as a serious thing that God is calling us to do. To impact the world for the cause of Christ is not only going to another part of the world. It is praying because we acknowledge as Christ followers, the Bible tells us prayer is this great, important, powerful weapon that we can use. Prayer tears down strongholds that the evil one has, has erected. Prayer brings honor and glory to God. One prayer can do both things at the same time. Our very prayer for a missionary, for a brother or sister in the faith that is suffering in a prison cell, that's being mistreated because of their desire to honor and praise God, our prayer for that person, for those individuals, gives praise and glory to God, and it tears down demonic strongholds. And that's what we're called to do. Let us not neglect our brothers and sisters. I think, guys, that we've, we live in such a casual, comfortable culture that we very easily forget about the brothers and sisters in our faith that are suffering for the cause of Christ around the world. How could those statistics be so stinking high and we have no idea what's going on? How is that possible? But it is all across the world. Let's look at verse 4. 
marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. But God, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And again, we look at this from a cultural perspective. Let's take a look just a moment. In chapter 12, the author mentions sexual immorality. And then again, in chapter 13, the author mentions sexual immorality as something that needs to be addressed, a focal point. Now keep in mind, when the author wrote this book roughly 2,000 years ago, this letter, it was not divided into chapters and verses. And so that chapter 12 was one thought, and then the author took a break and said, well, I'll come back tomorrow, and then I'll write chapter 13, and it's a different thought. This is one continuing thought. And twice within just a few verses, the author addresses the importance of addressing and staying away from sexual immorality. Now we say, and I've heard it said in our culture today that we're the most sexually immoral culture in the history of the world. I don't believe that. I believe that there has been sexual immorality in culture from the very beginning, from the instance of sin. Look in the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's the easy one to go to, but there's so many more that happened in the Old Testament. God, all over sexual immorality, hated it in the Old Testament. Jesus addressed it in the New Testament. Paul addressed it. Other authors in the New Testament addressed sexual immorality in the New Testament. And 2,000 years later, it's still something that's prominent in our culture. He talks about the marriage bed, keeping the marriage bed pure. What does that mean? Well, well marriage back 2,000 years ago when this was written is different than it is today. No, it's not. If you do any study into Judaism 2,000 years ago and the marriage idea. Maybe a, little, a few little things are tweaked here and there a little bit different than the way we are today, but the bottom line is one man, one woman committed for marriage for the rest of their lives. And here in the Scripture, he addresses 2,000 years ago a problem that we knew, the author knew, or the Holy Spirit knew, rather, that 2,000 years ago needs to be addressed right here again. This idea of sexual immorality and keeping marriage sacred, keeping marriage pure. When we look in our churches, in our Western church, the divorce rate within the church is equal, if not higher, than it is outside the church. Sexual immorality within the church as equal or higher than it is outside of church. And we're talking about, well, let's just throw the big thing. We're talking about pornography and these big bad sins. No, we're not. We're talking about all sorts of sins. Anything that in the category, according to Scripture, as sexual immorality, we're dealing with today, that was dealt with 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and 3,000 years ago. It was a problem then, it's a problem now. And we as Christ followers are called to draw a line in the sand and said no more. We don't want our children to deal with the sexual immorality issues of our cultural world simply because this is where we live. We want them to walk in holiness and purity, and we demonstrate holiness and purity to them. We stand up for holiness and purity. We talk to them about holiness and purity. We empower them to walk in holiness and purity as we do the exact same thing. As Christ followers, we're called to look different than the rest of the world. We're called to look different. And he addresses it. Let's not be like the rest of the world where sexual immorality runs rampant. Let's not be like the rest of the world, where marriage is here today and gone tomorrow. It's something that, that's just, you know, I feel like it today and I don't feel like it tomorrow. I'm not, I, I'll be committed until I just don't feel like it anymore. Guys, when we commit life on life with each other, 
It's not just the body of Christ that's doing that. It, it, our marriage is the same thing. It's life on life. It's a long-term commitment. Why, why, are, why are churches so splintered? Why are churches so broken? It's because we don't want to commit life on life with each other. We don't want to have that long-term investment with each other. We're not willing to go through the ups and the downs. Ups are fine, downs, no way. I'm running away, I'm going away. I'm not doing that anymore. Guys, we're called by Christ to love each other through our issues and through our heartaches and through our headaches. We're called to live repentant, purified lifestyles. We're called by God to be sanctified, to be set apart and to walk in holiness and to walk in purity. Verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Now, this is a hard one in our culture, isn't it? This is very hard because we're taught in our culture the acquisition of wealth equals happiness. We're called and told in our culture that the American dream is what we are destined to live out. It's what we as parents are called to give to our children, grandparents to our grandchildren, on and on and on. And this idea that money is going to fix everything. Can anybody in this room attest to the fact that money doesn't fix everything? Three people. <laughs> I was hoping for a little bit more than that. Guys, money. But wait a minute. God gave us money. God gave us finances. He gave us minds to, to, to be able to uh, acquire wealth. Here's the, here's the rub with it, guys. And here's what the author's talking about. You see, when the acquisition of wealth becomes the center of our circle of life, it becomes idolatry. And when the answer to life's problems become one more dollar, that becomes idolatry. And when finances dictate the way that I live my life and the places that I go and the things that I do, then that becomes my God. And that is idolatry. But God gives us minds and intellects and, and tells us if, even in the scripture, if you don't work, you don't eat. So work is given to us and the acquisition of wealth is something that God gives us. But what does he give it to us for? Well, it's all found in in verse 1, 2, and 3, along with all of the rest of the Scripture. We're called to have our finances to bless the world in the name of Jesus Christ. Yes, take care of yourself. Yes, provide food for your family in a, in a place of shelter. Yes, provide vehicles and, and things of that nature. But when the finances become the most important thing in our life, there's a struggle. There's a problem here. And what are we doing as adults in this room? In this room specifically, what are we doing as adults in this room to demonstrate to this next generation of teenagers and children that money does not fix life's problems? That's, that's tough. I mean, you think about the American dream. The American dream is for my children to have it bigger and better and more than I had. And then my grandchildren to have more and bigger and better than their parents had. And the great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren on and on and on and on. At some line, at some point in the, in the history of, of our culture, that's got to stop. There's, there's going to be one generation that's not going to have more than the generation before them at some point. There's not enough resources in this world to continue at that rate. 
Yet, that's what we teach. That's what we teach in our school systems. That's what we teach in our culture. That finances answers all of life's questions, all of life's problems can be fixed because of finances. But a few of you agree that's not the answer. And we know that's not the answer based on Scripture because what's the very next thing that the author tells us? He said, remember what God said. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And what's the key word there is the word never. Yet we live a life that says, God says I will sometimes take care of me and sometimes not. Again, it's that paradigm that we have within our mind. We put God in this box. We put God in this, in this little temple and say, well, everything that God's going to do is going to be based within that. And if I have a need that's outside of that box, outside of that temple, then that's not going to be answered by God. That God's not going to take care of it. But that goes against the scripture itself. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Never. Never. But. No, there is no buts. If. There are no ifs. When. There is no when. The word is never. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he leaves you and if he forsakes you, then he's not God. And you've put your trust in the wrong, lowercase g, God. Because the one true God, the Abba, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our daddy king who sits on the throne says in a promise, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Now you can look this up in, in the Old Testament. This actually goes back to Deuteronomy 31.6. You have Moses and Moses is about to go meet his maker. Moses is at the end of his life. The, the, the children of Israel are about to go into the promised land. This is one of the last commands that Moses gives before he walks into eternity with God. And he looks at Joshua, and he stands in front of the entire congregation of the people of Israel. And he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. For the Lord your God, Yehovah your Elohim, is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And that is not a promise that was given 4,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, to a group of people that are out of sight, out of mind, that's already in heaven. And it's for them and them alone. It's truth for us today. The truth of the Scripture is truth for us today. So how do we in our minds accept it, but then transform it from our minds to our very heart, to the very DNA of who we are? How do we actually believe and live out the fact that God will never leave me or God will, and God will not forsake me? Because when I'm way up here, it's fine. It's when I'm in the valley that I really struggle. It's when I'm fighting the depression, God's gone. It's when I'm fighting the financial struggle, God's gone. It's when family's in turmoil, God's gone. It's when life looks upside down, God's gone. Now, we may not say that out loud, but isn't that what we're thinking? Isn't that the way that we act? Isn't that the way we live our lives? But that's not truth. And so here's a practical step for you. To take this verse, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Write that on your mirror, put it on a sticky note, put it in your mirror, and then go home. And as you wake up in the morning, go to bed at night, however you need to do this, you look at yourself eyeball to eyeball in that mirror. And you say out loud, you repeat, you prophesy the truth of Scripture over your heart, over your life, so that your eardrums can hear you and your eyeballs see you. And you speak the truth and say, God says, He promised I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And he's talking to you in the mirror. Because it's easy to apply that to everybody else, right? I can tell my kids that. I can tell my next-door neighbor that. I can tell my spouse that. I can tell my grandkids that. I can tell my, my school kids that. I can tell somebody else that. But believing it and living it out for my own, my own heart, my own life, that's... Ugh. 
It's good for everybody else. It applies to everybody else, but, right? Isn't that the way we live our lives? It's good for everybody else. It's truth for everybody else except for me. That's a lie straight from the evil one himself. That's not true. Does it matter about your past? Does it matter about the mistakes? Does it matter what you did yesterday, day before yesterday? The truth is, today in this moment, God says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And when you feel like you're in the valley, it's probably where he's closer than you can even imagine. Look at what he says next. So we say this with confidence, verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can mere mortal do to me? That comes from Psalms 118, verses 6 and 7. So what's the answer to that? What can mere man do to me? Hmm. Let's see. Mere man can't hurt me because God's on my side. He's my helper. He'll never leave me or never forsake me, right? Cheer that. Yeah! Yeah! And then we go outside and man takes my car. And man takes my house. And man takes my family. And man takes my money. And on and on and on and on. And suddenly we're like, wait a minute. I don't know if this scripture is accurate because it said, what can mere mortal do to me? What can mere mankind do to me? And mere man can, mankind can take everything from me. So what does this actually mean? What's the one thing that mere mankind cannot take from you? And that's your soul. The essence of who you are. It cannot be taken from you. That's why so many times Moses told Joshua to be strong and courageous. Why do I need to be strong and courageous? Because the demonic want to destroy you. The demonic want to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what they want to do to you. Every single one of us. I must be strong and courageous. I must not be afraid because Jehovah, my Elohim, the Lord, my God is with me. He will never leave me. He will never save me. And even though mortal man can do some things to this physical body and to the things that I own, the things that I possess, what does it matter? Ultimately, because it's all God's. God didn't say 90% of the stuff's yours 10% is what I want you to give back to me. We kind of taught that sometimes in the church. That's not accurate. It's truly 100% of it is God's. And God commands us to be cheerful givers. Why? Because it teaches us how to give because he's such a generous giving God. That's the essence of giving. We give to the church. We give to our neighbors in need. We give to our family. We give to our children. We give to our parents. We give as we have the capability and we give out of the heartbeat of love. That's what this is all about because God is my helper. He won't leave me and he won't forsake me. Look at verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I can tell you quite honestly, as uh, as a pastor, that's a scary verse. I mean... Well, you could read that and you would say, well, that's talking about the person on the stage, right? I mean, look at your leader. Look at who's on stage. Look at the way they live their life and imitate them. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. Now, I do recall the scripture where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
And that's a command that Paul gave to others about himself. But Paul wasn't really saying that about us as Christ followers. But then I see a verse like this, like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm supposed to live a lifestyle. I'm supposed to live a Christ-like life in such a way that other people look at me and imitate me the way I imitate the life of Christ. Yes, and it's not just leaders. Now, it is partially leaders as on church staff, okay? We'll say that. It's leaders. It's pastoral leaders, okay? So hopefully, hopefully you're following pastoral leaders that are living such a Christ-like life that you look at them and say, I want to imitate them as they imitate Christ. Because if you're not part of that, if that's not what you feel that you're getting, whether you're in this church or you're somewhere else in the world, you need to find a place where you say in your heart of hearts, I may not agree everything with this said by pastoral staff, but I believe with all of my heart and soul that they are imitating Christ to the very best of their ability, and I want to imitate them as they imitate Christ. Now, that is a lot more responsibility, but it's not just for pastoral leaders. It's for Bible study teachers. That's for nursery workers. It's for kids' church leaders. That's for moms and dads. It's for grandmas and grandpas. It's for everybody. See, no matter who you are, what age you are in this room, you have a position of authority over somebody, but you also have a position where people look up to you. It's called influence. Who are the people that you have influence in and through? Where do you find your influence? As an influencer, you are held to a higher form of accountability. Well, my only influence is my children. Then live such a Christ-like life where your children can imitate you as you imitate Jesus. Whoever it is, wherever it is, live a Christ-like life. And then he says in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so that's the truth that we, were, that we apply to our hearts and our lives. And that's what we try to live out day in and day out. This truth that Jesus is the same yesterday, that Jesus is the same today, and Jesus is the same forever. The same Jesus, the same Messiah that was spoken of in the Old Testament, the same Messiah that came in the New Testament is the same Messiah and the same truth of who Jesus is today. 2,000 years later, the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament, is the same God today and forevermore. And at some point in the history of this world, at some point in the future, we'll all gather together in heaven because we'll all be there together as Christ followers. And we'll compare notes. And we'll say, well, did you see this? And well, I remember this happened. And we'll, we'll compare the notes and we'll look at the crowns of life everlasting that God has given us. As, as, and we'll look at our big brother Jesus and look at the way that he lived his life. And we'll compare these stories of what it was like to live a Christ-like life. And what we're going to find is that the saints that went before us 2,000, 1,000, 300 years ago are going to have similar stories because God is the same yesterday as we are today in this room because God is the same today. And for those who we have not seen yet and may not see in this lifetime until sometime in the future when we're in heaven, these, these third, fourth, fifth generations beyond us, if God tar tarries that long before he comes back 
And we'll all compare notes and we'll all see the truth that in that moment we'll acknowledge that Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, was the same yesterday, the same today, and for all of eternity that blows our mind, it will not stop, but will continue. And we'll celebrate that. In heaven, it's going to be a celebration. The Bible talks about work in heaven. I don't know what that's going to look like. Nobody really knows exactly, but it's going to be fun. I don't think we're going to get blisters on our hands in heaven from, from, from the manual labor, but who knows? But it's going to be fun. But right now, in the heat of the battle, in the heat of life, we can look at each other and, and just be honest and say it's not fun. There are times when life's fun. There's times when life, I want to say some bad words. And that's just the truth of it. But we have to help each other. We have to love each other. We have to embrace each other. We have to look at each other as Christ looked at, at us as brothers and sisters, as Christ followers. If you've said yes to Jesus, then you are a little brother or a little sister of Jesus. He's our big brother. He's our inspiration. He showed us the way to do it as a good big brother. He showed us the example of, a, of how to live a life. And so we imitate what our big brother showed us and told us to do because he is imitating what he sees for the King of kings and Lord of lords. Today, if you've never said yes to Jesus, don't let another day go by. Don't let another day go by before you say yes to Jesus. But if you've already said yes to Jesus and you feel like you're in a valley, go home. Put that sticky note on the mirror and look at yourself eyeball to eyeball and say, He will never leave me and He will never forsake me. If you need prayer today, don't wait. Come up and have somebody pray with you, pray over you, pray, pray with you. Let's not leave this place again and just say, hey, it was another day. We sang some good songs. We listened to some mediocre preaching. And, you know, now I get to go home and eat some fried chicken. You know, let it not be that kind of day. Let it not be that kind of day. Let this be a day unlike any other day in the past. Why? Because this is the day the Lord has made. And I choose to rejoice and be glad in it. I can't change the past. You can't change the past. Condemnation, regret remorse. Those are things the evil one uses. Those are his tools. Stay away from them. Acknowledge what happened in the past happened. And I'm sorry. And if it, if it was something you need to confess, confess it in the name of Jesus and be done with it. This is a new day. This is a new moment. This is a new life. He's given you a new breath of life today. Walk it out in humbleness and obedience. Walk it out in holiness and purity. Be a champion. Be the prince or the princess that you are. When you say yes to Jesus, you're given a crown because you have been adopted and you're a princess or you're a prince with all authority that comes with that. chance to celebrate. It's a chance to 
look at ourselves a little bit different in the mirror. It's a chance to walk in freedom and to be healed and be made whole. That's what he offers. It's not unique to just this moment. He offers it unconditionally. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's just up to us. Reach out. Say, yeah. Daddy King, I want it. We're going to have some people up front that would love to pray with you if you would like some prayer.